Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. But we start today with the fight over the future of policing in the city of Surrey. Now, Surrey City Council and their new mayor, Brenda Locke, of course, have promised to keep the RCMP in Surrey. They want to slam the brakes on this new municipal police force, go back to the RCMP here, and uh, they've asked the new Surrey Police Service, look, we want to go back to the Mounties here, so stop hiring all these police officers, will you? Stop spending money. Please stop expanding this new Surrey police force because we want to shut you down. Well, yesterday's show, I spoke to Norm Lipinski. He is the chief of this new Surrey police force. And he, he's having none of that. He says, look, we're hiring more officers. Here's what Norm Lipinski had to say to me about it yesterday. Have a listen. We have a document where it goes out to March of, uh, of uh, 2023, and uh, we are moving forward with that, recognizing oh. the unique circumstance that we are in. We will be moving forward with the uh, human resource plan, as was agreed upon by the three levels of government. No other level of government has told us to put the brakes on it. There you go, Mayor Locke. He'll be hiring more police officers no matter what the city council tells them to do. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Jack Hundile. Jack is a former RCMP officer himself, former Surrey City Councillor. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jack, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. Okay, good morning to you, Jack. Thanks for doing this. You support going back to them, keeping the Mounties in Surrey, right? Well, there's still the police force of jurisdiction there, so that's never yeah. changed. So when we talk about going back, we're really moving forward with what we already have. Yeah, why do you think that is the best option for the city right now instead of this new Surrey Police Service? One of the fundamental things in changing police forces that was uh, proffered all the way along was local control. And what we see here is a, is a classic example where local control, which is the elected officials of the city, saying, look, we can't afford to do this uh, because we're not seeing that cost benefit of switching over. And now you have a chief of police saying, look, I didn't even answer to you guys. So where's yeah. that local control <laughs> um, that has been promised all the way along? Now you couple that with, which was really clearly stated by voters, and it has been really by Surrey taxpayers all along, is that, you know, for we don't even know what the true cost is of this. And we don't want to be on the hook for this for generations ahead. This is a once in a generational change. And people need to be informed on what they're going to be paying for that moving forward. What do you think about the chief just flat out saying here to me yesterday that, look, even though the mayor wants us to stop spending money here until this is sorted out, even though city council is asking us to stop hiring new police officers for this new police force, we're going ahead and hiring these cops, these new cops anyway. What do you think of that? Do you think he should be doing what the, the mayor and the council tells him to do? I, I think it's, it's very, very disingenuous on his part to be saying that, because really what you're saying is it's not even the mayor and council. It's the taxpayers that are ultimately footing the bill for this whole thing. Look, the economy is changing. People's finances are changing moving ahead. We really don't know what's going to be ahead in the next few years. 
So now you're, you're saying we're going to push ahead with a program where, where we're going to be paying for two police forces for a short period of time. And ultimately, it's the taxpayers that foot the bill for this. And people need to realize that. And that authority is only granted to him by an order in council, which the minister has clearly stated, look, send me an updated public safety <coughs> plan and you can keep right. going with the RCMP. So that seems to be lost on uh, Chief Lipinski. Well, okay. Well, Mike Farnworth, who is the Solicitor General here, he was asked about this yesterday. You know, you got this city, this weird situation where the city is tell- telling their own police force to stop hiring, stop spending money, and the, the, the police are saying no. And Farnworth was asked about this yesterday, and he, he sided with Lipinski. He sided with the Surrey Police Service. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. So this is Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, speaking yesterday. I don't have the authority to, to freeze spending. Uh, there is a plan that is already in place, uh, and that plan continues until there is a new plan. This, the city does not have the authority to freeze this spending. The plan is in place, and the plan is going forward. Jack Hundell, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's, it's Mr. Farnworth, Mr. Farnworth also saying, look, send me an updated public safety plan of what we're moving forward with. He's already gotten a bit of that. He's going to get the rest of that at the end of the month, from my understanding. And then so I think, you know, ultimately, Mr. Farnworth needs to understand, and I think he does, and so does the NDP government, that this new government was elected with a very clear uh, understanding and mandate. This is what, you know, Brenda Locke ran on. I stood with her at Bear Creek Park two years ago when she made this announcement. Um, so how can he and the, uh, the NDP government now turn around and say, look, well, no, you're stuck with this from before. You know, this is the second largest city um, in the province. So I think he will, will understand that as time goes on. Right. So you think that, okay, would you argue, therefore, that we, we just had an election, Brenda Locke is the new mayor, she won a majority on city council. You think the people have spoken, therefore, and that the province should should go along with the wishes that expressed by voters here and allow them to do this, keep the RCMP, correct? Absolutely. Look, three years ago, yeah. four years ago, when this happened before, there was no issue that uh, uh, Mr. Farmer came out clearly stated, whatever the wishes of the Surrey taxpayers are, that's what we're going to go with. Yeah. So what's changed in that time frame? Speaking of Jack Hundal, Jack is a former RCMP officer, former Surrey City Councillor. You know, you've got this new Surrey Police Service in place now there is a union over there they actually have a union for these new surrey police officers and their union said last week look we have talked to all our members here we've done a poll of them we've done a survey and the vast majority of them like 94 percent of them saying we don't want to work for the rcmp and if the city decides to stick with the rcmp we're out of here they're basically saying that they're they're going to quit on mass are you buying that? Like, do you think that's a bluff, or do you think that's real? I, my understanding for the, with the members that are even in SPS, and I have uh, quite a few friends that uh, that are in there that came from different municipal agencies or from the Mounties beforehand. At the end of the day, they're going to make the individual choices for whatever suits their career needs and wants. So I think it's yeah. one thing for the union to come out and say this, um, but in, in reality, when you actually talk to them one-on-one, uh, some people already retired from other forces to come over here, and they'll continue on in the policing career. Other people are going to exit policing altogether. Um, 
So I, I think it's a bit of a, uh, you know, I, I call a bluff on that for the union, quite frankly. Hey, hey Jack, um, they, they've already, they've spent millions of dollars on this already, right? Mm-hmm, like they've, yeah. they've hired new police officers. They've paid out severance money to former officers who decided to not go along with this. They've spent a ton of money on new uniforms and, and police cruisers and, and IT systems. You know, they estimate me 160 million bucks has already been spent. And that if you turn back now, that's just money down the drain. What do you think of that argument? I think if you don't turn back now, you're going to be spending more money and wasting more money moving forward. Look, this thing was ill-conceived from day one. Um, and, and I go back to when even the public consultation was done under Mayor McCallum, which even that public consultation said, look, people still want to keep the RCMP and hire more police yeah. officers. They were at a council, which, uh, and, you know, which the majority on didn't support hiring new police officers for four years. And now we have some SPS members working in the city of Surrey, still the RCMP is a police force of jurisdiction as per the yeah. trilateral agreement. And we have police officers in SPS that are doing quote unquote administrative duties uh, sitting at home. <laughs> so how does this serve the, the city of Surrey and the taxpayer at the end of the day? First of all, from the costing, second of all, from the public safety perspective, which is really what this is about. Yeah. Jack, thank you for coming on. Okay, thank you. Here we go now with the housing affordability crisis in our province, especially in Metro Vancouver. The market has cooled off quite a bit. Sales are down. Prices coming down a bit too, but let's be honest here. This is still a brutally unaffordable market for many people. Even a modest condo out of reach for many people who want to get into a home. What to do about it? Well, how about this idea that's still getting some interest now? A home equity tax on expensive homes use that money to build affordable housing brand new opinion poll out on this says 62 percent of canadians support a modest surtax on homes valued more than one million dollars this idea has been championed by my next guest paul kershaw professor at UBC, founder of Generation Squeeze. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Paul, so we've talked about this proposal before, and, you know, for people who are already living in a home now, of course, they don't like the idea of this of this tax, but tell me about this new poll that shows that most Canadians like it, like the proposal. Yeah, so it actually suggests that we're inaccurate characterizing it the way that you did. It turns out a majority of Canadians are in favor of the idea that we could put a modest price on housing inequity by asking the 10% of Canadians who live in homes, who own homes over a million dollars, to contribute slightly more on the value above that million bucks. And you might think, but, oh, you know, what about in Metro Vancouver, where, you know, that's a more common reality? Right. So it turns out that about a quarter of British Columbians uh, own homes that are over a million bucks. And, and it's important just to remind ourselves about that. You might think in Vancouver, we all say the average price of a home is a million bucks, so that's the median. But remember, in Vancouver, the majority of people are renters. And so, you know, households that own a million-dollar home is still actually, it doesn't make you Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, but it's certainly a sign of relative security in housing. And what I find most hopeful about the poll that Research Co. did for us is that it found owners of million-dollar homes, full disclosure, that includes me, owners of million-dollar homes, are actually a majority of them are supportive of contributing wow. to th- this surtax. And that, I think, 
really creates a lot of political cover for our politicians to courageously think now we need to soften the hardest edges of the homeownership tax shelter because our our citizens realize that this harmful tax shelter is as much to blame for housing unaffordability as unethical behavior by real estate agents, de- developers building the wrong kind of supply, and even criminal activity. That's what our poll is showing. Why do you call it a tax shelter if you own a home? How does the tax shelter work? Well, 50 years ago, the government of Canada made a decision to not uh, collect taxes on wealth that ga- people gain in their principal residences. Now, a half century ago, we had homes that were much closer to the earnings that people make. And I don't think they imagined that housing prices would skyrocket in the way that they have since. But the problem is that very tax policy decision to shelter housing wealth, like we shelter no other asset from taxation, is that it it signals some confusion for Canadian culture. Do we treat housing as a place to call home or do we treat it as an investment strategy and a good way to be rich after taxes? Well, the more we think about the latter, the more we induce people to want home prices to rise. And that's mostly what we want our tax policy change to to counter. We don't want home prices to keep rising. Right. Okay, but the tax shelter, as you describe it, only applies, as you said, to someone's principal residence. So if this is a home that you live in yourself and then you sell it, uh, any kind of realized profit there, you know, there's no tax on that. If you think about homes as an investment, you know, I think most people would think about someone who's like a property flipper. If you if you buy a house just to flip it and make a quick buck, you get taxed on that, right? There's a capital gains tax on that, correct? It's, it is true. Uh, yeah. So there are many people, though, who become serial principal residence owners <laughs> um, oh. and, and, you know, and make changes and then move to their next principal residence. And you'll have many people who, you know, will talk about how, you know, in Metro Vancouver, they think, well, the rise in my, the value of my home is part of my pension plan. But right, then you sure. have the woman in, yeah. in Fredericton. So let me give you the, the, the lovely widower in Fredericton who four decades ago bought a home for a quarter million in today's dollars. And it's now worth 310000 And she's looking at the widower in Vancouver who bought the same priced home four decades ago, and now it's worth $4 million. And the yeah. widower in Fredericton's like, you're taxing my income like you're taxing the Vancouver retiree's income. But you're not recognizing that she has millions in wealth, and I don't. And that is an unfairness between seniors in different regions and certainly between older and younger people in our city. Okay, how much would this tax cost that you propose? Because you propose a surtax on homes valued at $1 million or more, but, and it would be an annual tax you would have to pay every year, right? So how much would it, how much would it be? Yes. So you pay every year, although you could defer it until the sale of the home because we don't want to push anyone out of their home because of the tax. At $1.1 million, it would be $200 a year. Not very much at all. So it's more symbolic than anything. For me, at $2.2 million, it would be 4500 a year. Whoa. Well, that's quite a lot. Isn't it? It, it is. Um, it is. You know, it's, it's something that would make me have to plan differently for my taxation. There's no doubt about it. Would I avail myself of the opportunity to defer I might well do, um, but nevertheless, that's an important that's an important dynamic for us to to consider. So the value yeah. only five percent of British Columbians own homes own households over uh, two million dollars. I know that'll surprise people, but it's very it's relatively uncommon. And so somebody like me, you know, 
I could contribute a little bit more based on my housing wealth so that we could reduce taxes for middle income earners and lower income earners. Just okay. imagine if we could reduce taxes on an, someone making 50000 by asking someone like me to say, hey, you know, can you contribute more based on your housing wealth? That's the dialogue that I think we increasingly need. Okay. And it turns what- out the polling supports that. Okay. Whenever we have this dialogue and whenever we have you on, Paul, we get reaction from homeowners who who hate this idea of the tax man coming to get them. So let me play a clip here for you from Delta City Councilor Dylan Kruger. This is a young city councilor. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a very smart and and, uh, dynamic young guy and, and politics in our region, for sure. I agree with you. So here he is on an earlier show. He disagrees with you on this. So he says, look, you know, taxing our way out of this is not the answer. Here's what he has to say. We'll get your thoughts. This is another demand suppression tactic, and, and we've, we've seen a lot of these over the last five or six years. I mean, just think of the taxes that we put on housing in the last half decade, the foreign buyer's tax, the speculation tax, the vacancy tax, the school tax. So we see the taxes on, on, on housing going up every year, and I don't think the problem is getting better. We seem to want to do everything except for tackle, you know, what I see is the real issue here, which is a serious lack of supply. Paul Kershaw, what do you say to him? So first off, it doesn't have to be either or. So we can do both. And that's why on other times I've been on your show, I would talk about the importance of supply. And I'll echo that again. And I'll also point out Dylan named a whole bunch of taxes that almost affect no British Columbians. Indeed, BC's government brags that our speculation and vacancy tax (laughs) exempts over 99% of British Columbians. And so, yes, it's not sending a big enough signal into our housing system about what do we want for home prices? What I'm proposing would touch about a quarter of British Columbians and ask us to say, ask us to say, look, we don't want home prices to continue to rise. We don't want them to be crossing this million dollar threshold in so many parts of our province. Let's let's have a policy signal that discourages that. And then you can put that wisdom together with Dylan's wisdom about building the right kind of supply. And indeed, the, the money we could raise from what I'm proposing could then go into building deeply affordable rental and deeply affordable cooperative housing. And that's the nice okay. win-win. Okay, here's another clip from Dylan Kruger on an earlier show, Delta City Councilor, arguing that, look, the way out of this is not a new tax, but we need to densify, rezone neighborhoods. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. I don't think additional taxes on housing are, are going to necessarily solve that problem. The problem is that we've got a broken market. We've got uh, an artificial market that's been created by basically municipalities putting time capsules over entire swaths of neighborhoods and saying that these single detached homes are not allowed to evolve and change over time. The reality is for a lot of people my age, the dream of the, the single detached home with the white picket fence is over. Okay, so he's arguing for densification. This is a hot topic right now, too, especially in neighborhoods that are single-family zone neighborhoods. Densify in these neighborhoods. Build more stuff. Build more supply. Your thoughts, Paul? So he's right about that, and that's why Jen Squeeze has worked with a number of municipalities to encourage them to change their zoning to add just the density that Dylan is talking about. But the difference between Dylan and me on this issue is I want him to walk and chew gum at the same time. He pointed out that the market is not working, and that's partly because he said zoning policy is problematic. He's right about the zoning policy. But the homeownership tax shelter is also a bad policy causing problems in our market because it incentivizes people to think about housing not just as a place to call home, but a way to get rich. And that, sorry for the phone call in the back, that is a problem we're needing to address. So walk and chew gum, Dylan, we can do it. (laughs) Okay, Paul, it's always great to talk to you on this topic. There's a ton of interest in it. Thank you for coming on today. 
My pleasure. Happy to do it again. And for those people who are angry about the idea when you hear it today, know now you're in the minority. The poll shows that a majority of Canadians support it. All right, here we go now with the fight over climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. COP27, the UN Climate Change Conference, underway this week in Egypt and closer to home right here in B.C., Check this out now. The Wilderness Committee, which is a major environmental group in British Columbia, has just released their Dirty 30 list. The Dirty 30 list. This is the list of 30 individuals in British Columbia. The group says are holding back climate change action in B.C. Forget about the Dirty Dozen. This is the Dirty 30 The group says these are a list of lobbyists, politicians, business leaders, who they say are prolonging B.C.'s reliance on fossil fuels, fracking, old-growth logging, and undermining climate change action. Take a look at who's on this list here. Take a look at the top ten. Oh, look who's in here, number nine, Premier John Horgan. Number nine here on the Dirty 30 and he makes the list for partly for supporting liquefied natural gas development in BC. We have an awesome panel standing by to discuss this here now. Peter McCartney and Mosahota. First, have a listen to this. Here's here's John Horgan announcing the LNG Canada mega project here in BC. This is one of the reasons why he's on this dirty thirty list. Have a listen. And this is about a commitment from the people of British Columbia to our resources and to do what we can to make life better for British Columbians make life better for Canadians, and make life better for people around the world. Today, today, LNG Canada has sent a signal to the people of the world that British Columbia and Canada are open for business. Business for liquefied natural gas, uh, that helped them to make the Dirty 30 list here. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Peter McCartney, climate campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. Hey, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. Also on the line, Mo Sahota, former NDP cabinet minister, former NDP party president, and he comes in here at number seven on the Dirty 30 list. Hi, Mo. Oh, thanks, Mike, for inviting me on. This is a pretty serious issue, and um, I look forward to discussing it. It's very, very important and very nice of you to, uh, to arrange this. Absolutely. I agree with you. Peter, let me go to you first. Okay, the Dirty 30, that's a pretty nasty name there, the Dirty 30 list. Tell me why you did this. Well, it's kind of a play on words from the clean 50 list, you know, and clean BC. Um, these are the people that we believe are holding climate action back in British Columbia. And, you know, you do this work for long enough and you get a pretty good sense of who is working against you and, uh, and the levers of power that are exercising themselves on the provincial government to prolong our reliance on fossil fuels and old growth logging. And so we released this list so that British Columbians could know how that power is uh, being exerted on our provincial government okay. and the, the pieces of the provincial government that are often working in favor of fossil fuel interests as opposed to the public interest. Okay, you're on the air here with Mo Sahota right now. You put him number seven on the Dirty 30 list. Why is he on the list? Well, he is a lobbyist for Wood Fiber LNG. He uh, regularly appeared on the CBC uh, politics panel. 
Um, you know, he's a he's a figure in British Columbia that has lobbied for more fossil fuel development and um, and in particular, more fossil fuel subsidies for wood fiber LNG. If you look at his lobbying record, he has met with Jeff Meggs, with Fazil Millar, with Bruce Ralston on a regular basis um, through the last few years uh, in order okay. to get wood fiber LNG, more subsidies and promote fossil fuel development. OK, Mo Sahota, what do you say to him? Well, look, this is this is about climate change. It's not about me, and I'll, I'll deal with me later on, Mike, if you if you want me to return to that. But look, there's a difference between rhetoric and and reality, and I think it's it's both misleading and frankly appalling to say that uh, John Horgan, Minister Ralston, and and senior government staff are holding back uh, provincial climate action. I sort of remind you what happened just a year ago, when the leading climate scientists of around the world. And the different nations gathered in Scotland, this year they're meeting in in Egypt at the World UN uh, Conference on Climate Change. And last year they studied the climate plans of different governments around the world, including BC's. And BC's is a pretty straightforward program. It taxes polluters and takes that carbon tax revenue and helps to invest in reducing emissions. When when, When these experts from around the world, from the UN looked at BC, BC was given an international award for its plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. No other province in Canada can make that that claim. Here's a guy that you may know, Mike, Uh, one of Canada's leading climate scientists by the name of Dr. Andrew Weaver, who was formerly the leader of the Green Party of BC, looked at the BC plan and said this, and I quote, this is what climate leadership looks like. Environmental groups, from the Pemina Institute to Clean Energy Canada, mainstream groups, uh, looked at uh, BC's plan, chimed in to say, and I quote again, this is a concrete plan that would, for the first time, close BC's emissions and hit our climate targets. Renowned academics and and energy economists, including Chris Patil, called it aspirational and said, quote-unquote, kudos to John Horgan. We have environmental groups, UN affiliates, the former leader of the Green Party, applauding the NDP for its climate initiatives. It's really sad to think that this group can't bring itself to say something good when so many others have praised the NDP for its uh, emissions plan. Let me end on this point. Most reasonably-minded people would say that environmental environmental groups um, have the right to attack government, and that's okay. That comes with the territory. I've been an environment minister. But, but most reasonable-minded people would say that we need to have balance. And when you get environmental groups, Green Party leaders, the UN, citing BC as a gold or, shall I say, green standard in North America, most reasonably-minded people would say that we've struck the right balance and that we okay. should be proud of what we've accomplished. Let me end by asking this question to Peter. Can yep. you name one other province, or in the 50 states of the U.S., one other state that has, A, won an international award, B, won the praise of mainstream environmental groups, and C, has won the endorsement of the leader of the Green Party. Can you name just one? Go ahead, Peter. Peter McCartney. You can't, can you, Peter? Quebec has banned fracking. Washington has banned fracking. California has banned fracking. Answer the question, Peter. Ask your question. All of these uh, subjurisdictions are members of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance because... And that is a different alliance than the under two coalition, which is what presented the award, which is a different group of states. It was not 
formed by scientists and experts. Hey. It was global jurisdictions that did this. But the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance Name one jurisdiction. has said that we cannot continue to con- uh, go on with fossil fuels. And so when um, you can't name one, the, the expert, when the experts studied this plan, when the experts studied the world, um, when the experts from Catherine McKenna and the UN Secretary General because uh, you can't name struck, one. struck a group of people to look and define what net zero means. Because British Columbia is supposedly committed to net zero, and Woodside Barrel LNG is supposedly committed to net zero, they said that we cannot continue with new fossil fuel projects. That is part of the definition of net zero. Well, okay. So if okay. BC, Mike, you want to take a break, and I'll BC, deal with that in a sec. Okay. Here, here's BC what we'll wants do. to commit to net zero. It needs yeah. to end its support for the liquefied natural okay. gas industry. I'll, I'll, I want to deal with that. All right. Welcome back to the show. We continue our debate now. My guest, Peter McCartney at the Wilderness Committee, their dirty 30 list just out of British Columbians. They, they say are holding back climate change action. Mo Sahota, former NDP cabinet minister, he's on the list. Okay, Mo, if you want to go ahead and respond to Peter's points there. Sure. Well, now that we've established that, that B.C. and that no other province or state has achieved the recognition that B.C. has on a global footing, let's deal with Peter's other point about, uh, about global issues. Look, Mike, we all live on the same planet. There's only one planet. And we all breathe air, and we need clean air. And uh, climate change is a global challenge. You and I haven't talked much about this, and I wish we would, Mike. Um, after I left politics, even though you predicted I'd come back, I actually went to India and worked as an advisor um, to one of the largest uh, wind turbine and solar panel production uh, companies uh, really in, in the world. And, um, and I've been doing that up until COVID hit every year for the last 20 years. And we've made enormous progress in that regard in, in India. But despite all the progress that we've made, 74% still of India's uh, electric power comes from coal, coal generation. India is right Great. now asking. Just, well, just let me finish, my friend. I'll give you lots of time. You don't just let give me, me finish at all, Mo. Let, let, let me let me finish, and then and then I'll ask you a question. How's that? No, I'm not okay. asking. Okay. Well, hang on, hang on. No, okay. I'm no, sorry, uh, Mike will ask hang you a question. What, what, okay, what, just some. Guys, guys, guys. Secretary General's high-level expert group has just said that the definition of net zero includes no new investments in fossil fuels. So will wood fiber just, LNG cancel its investment in the okay, wood, guys. wood fiber LNG facility, new fossil like, fuels? Uh, okay, guys, Mike, guys, hang on, hang on a sec. Guys, down, guys so just, can... just a minute, okay? I, I'm going to insist that both of you uh, not talk over each other here because the listeners will, won't hear anything. They'll just hear gibberish. Mo, let, let me go to you. Quickly respond, but please be brief. No, I, go ahead. I, I went to India. I've been doing this for 20 years. And still, 74% of India's power comes from coal. Greenpeace says that about 70,000 people die each year because of NOx and SOx and, and, and carbon uh, uh, emissions. And I've seen it with my own eyes when I've done my work in that jurisdiction. And I've sat down with bureaucrats, and I've told them about some of the things that we do in British Columbia, including, as he mentions, wood fiber LNG, where through electrification – we can have a 45% reduction in emissions from, uh, from coal-fired uh, uh, facilities. And okay. they look at me in disbelief. 45%, they say to me, 
wow, how can we get that technology to come here to, to India? We need okay. your help, Mr. Sahota. And you know okay. what? When people ask for help, you give it to them. So okay. my, I want to ask Peter this question. Have you actually gone to India or China or to Malaysia or to Japan or to Korea, our trading partners? Have you actually sat down? Okay, Mo, just the, in, the, in, the inter- in the interest of and listen to the Mo. desperation. In the interest of time, have an obligation I, I, to help them, whether it's hydrogen, electricity, or, coal, or, Mo, or, or LNG. Mo, we have to give Peter equal time here. Peter, go ahead, please. Just uh, continuing on. Um, India, at this very moment, is at the COP27 negotiation, lobbying for language in the agreement that says we should phase down all fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas. And so they don't want your LNG, Mo. They don't want wood fiber LNG and its decades of carbon pollution that it will lock their people into because they're currently asking for the opposite at, uh, at the global negotiations on climate change right now. But I would like to, Mo to answer my question. If net zero means no new investments in fossil fuels and wood fiber LNG is committed to net zero and actually getting funding from the federal government for that, will they cancel their investment in the wood fiber LNG fossil fuel project? Mo. And uh, it's an approved project, approved not only by Canada under environmental assessment, approved not only by B.C. in terms of environmental assessment, but it is also approved by the First Nations in the area, the Squamish First Nation, who, and that's, it's the only project of its kind in Canada that has an environmental certificate from First Nations. That's how far they've gone. And as a result of the, you know, you like to talk about, about subsidies. As a result yeah. of this project, that First Nation in that area, Squamish First Nation, will receive somewhere between 800, and a, 800 million to a billion dollars in terms of revenue over the course of this project. That's, that, that's economic indigenous reconciliation at play. So this okay, is an Peter. approved project that fits within its, uh, its parameters. Peter uh, McCartney. Its, uh, the parameters that Canada set. So the answer to that question is no. But answer my question. It's really easy in the cozy confines of your couch here in a privileged world that we live in in British Columbia to make comments about India. You've never been there. You've never talked to the people. Yes, you're right. They want to phase out. But what you're ignoring is that they want our technology to help them get to the emission standards that they need to get to. Okay, they Peter, want, go ahead. They want go ahead, please. Out, and yet they want our LNG technology. That is That makes no sense, Mo, because it can't. Because the reality is that gas heats the world faster than coal. It locks us into decades more carbon pollution. And India knows, because they're experiencing the same climate disasters that <laughs> we are experiencing here, that... They need to get off of fossil fuels as fast as possible. So they're doing all sorts of wind, of putting solar farms on top of their canals to uh, challenge evaporation and generate renewable energy. They're doing everything they can. And guess what? The LNG industry in British Columbia is not part of their plan. Okay. They have moved on, and you should too. Okay, Peter, Peter went first when we started the debate, so Mo, I'll give you the last word, but you only got 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. Okay. Peter, let me tell you this. Stunts and slogans don't solve problems. And there are real problems on the other side of the world. I've seen them. I've lived them. You've never been there. You've never talked to those officials. You have no clue as to how, how significant that challenge is. When the world comes to us and asks for help, 
the first thing that BC should do is to step up to the plate. Okay. That means assisting them on hydrogen, electricity, and on LNG pursuant to their requests. 